over the past uh, couple weeks, I've had so much fun leading some of these partnership classes uh, in some of your small groups. And some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but that's okay. We're, we're moving uh, into a partnership here at Letters Reese and doing these classes about what it means to be the church. And not just the church here at Letters Reese Covenant Church, but what does it mean to be a participating uh, person, a follower of Jesus in community, in the church. We've been looking not only at our history as a three-year-old church plant and not only at our history as the Evangelical Covenant Church in America, but back through our Lutheran and Pietist roots, back through the early church, uh, even in the, in the book of Acts, and it has been a blast. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to be on this journey with you through Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written probably just 30 to 40 years after Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And you've heard my take on this letter, but I'll say it again. Unlike Paul's other letters, which were mostly written in response to some kind of issue, like somebody was sleeping with somebody's stepmom, or or, uh, there was a theological issue. Uh, Paul was like putting out fires in so many of his letters. But Ephesians doesn't seem to be like that. And, and, And kind of my take on it is that Ephesians is maybe that letter Paul always wanted to write. It's it's a a letter about what the church actually was created to be, actually looks like in God's eyes. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like as an individual I'm in a chaotic mess. I don't really know where I fit. It's kind of like we're all puzzle pieces in a million-piece puzzle. And Ephesians is kind of like the box top to that million-piece puzzle. And it shows us a picture of what the church is supposed to look like, what it can look like in Christ. The first whole chapter, basically, of Ephesians is an outburst of worship. Paul, in these ridiculously long run-on sentences, it seems like he can hardly articulate in words the praise and worship that's going on inside of his heart. In that first chapter of Ephesians that we've spent weeks on now, uh, we've learned that we are called... Saints and faithful in Christ Jesus, blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before God, predestined to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to the Father. We're redeemed through the blood of Jesus and forgiven. We have had the mystery of God revealed to us, summing up of all things in Christ. We've been made God's inheritance. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, who's the down payment of our inheritance, all to the praise of the glory of His grace. Well, then Paul prays that we would do more than know those things in our heads, but it would seep down into our hearts, the very control center of who we are, the very center of what makes me, me, and you, you, and us, us. That these wonderful truths would influence the way we think and feel and relate to God and relate to each other and relate to the world. And when we doubt that any of this is is possible, it sounds way too good to be true, when we encounter in our lives resistance to this change, whether it's from inside or outside, Paul tells us, that the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead also seated Jesus at the right hand of the Father. That same power is in Jesus now who reigns over us, who is the head of us, the church. So basically, he's saying there is nothing 
Nothing more powerful than that that can stand in our way of becoming like Christ. Glorious. I mean, that sounds great. That sounds big and impersonal and like a lot of big ideas. And so in chapter 2, I think Paul takes it down another notch and gets a little more deep into our hearts. Paul shows us just how all this might be applied in our lives. Would you stand with me as we read Ephesians chapter 2? And we're just going to reach back a little bit and, and read verses 1 through 10. He's saying this to the church, not to any one person. So he's saying to you, plural. You were dead in your transgressions, your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that not any of us can boast. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Father, thank you for this living word. Lord, for those of us to whom this is very familiar, would you give us a spiritual slap upside the proverbial head, Lord? Would you shake us afresh with the good news of these words? Lord, would you help each of us to recognize the power of your grace and to have a vision of this new creation, this new life that you're calling us to live, inviting us to live into. Only you can do that. Help us, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I am thankful for James Matichuk, who preached last week on the first seven verses of this passage. I listened to the podcast after getting home uh, from vacation and appreciate how James summed it up, uh, summed up the, the, the powers of the air uh, as social and cultural and spiritual. That is, the ways in which we walked before being rescued by Jesus may not have seemed all that bad. We were just doing life. We, we may not have been axe murderers or terrorists, or as James said, woken up in a ditch of our own vomit one morning. Um, but we were still living as though Jesus was not king of our lives. Dead in our transgressions. 
our walk, as seemingly mild as it may have been, or maybe as extreme as it may have been, was leading to death. And we were under those powers of darkness, whether spiritual powers or whether it's just the way we were taught and everything in between. But the amazing reality is that God intervened in your life and in mine even while we were dead, even while we weren't noticing, even while we weren't looking for Him, He reached out to us. And this God seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Now you might be thinking, uh, I'm in Bellingham I'm in a pew right now. I'm not like in the heavenly places. What that means, and I think, again, I appreciate how James put it, is that if Christ is above all the powers, if He's in the heavenly places above all of these powers of darkness, and we're seated with Him, if we are in Christ, as Paul has been talking about throughout this book thus far, in Christ, by the way, mentioned 164 times in Paul's letters. I think it's the theological motif of Paul's salvation theology, but we can talk about that over dinner. What does it mean to be in Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places? It means that we are above all of those powers of darkness. All of those things that we can allow to draw us down, but we don't have to let them draw us down anymore because we are with Christ. And now, in the venerable words of Saint Nacho Libre, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Having already mentioned grace in verse 5, Paul returns now to the heart of this passage and reframes it more succinctly. And here's what I'd like to do for a little participation. I'd like you just to look at your neighbor, and if you're comfortable, if it's somebody you kind of know, maybe put your hand on their hand or hand on their shoulder. Nothing too touchy-feely, but you know what I'm saying. Make, make it personal. And repeat after me, look them in the eye and say this, For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this salvation is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works. So that no one may boast. Okay, I think we're making some headway. Let's do one more. One more exercise. I'd like this side of the room to look at this side of the room and this side of the room to look at that side of the room and lovingly point to them because this is good news, not judgment. <laughs> For by grace you have been saved, by grace you have saved. Through, faith. through faith and this salvation is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that you can't boast. So I, I changed the scripture a little bit. All right, let's take a look at these couple of sentences, verses 8 and 9. The main verb in there is saved. Literally, it's in the passive, so you have been saved. It's not something that uh, you can go get or do. What is it to be saved? Is it forgiveness? I think sometimes when we think of that word salvation, we think of forgiveness. But being saved isn't forgiveness. Or, or maybe what I should say is being saved includes forgiveness, but it's not merely forgiveness. 
In fact, if you read the Bible in the Old Testament, they actually had a way to be forgiven of sins before Jesus came along. It sucked. You had to kill animals and sacrifice them. Uh, And it didn't last very long because you could sin real quick after that. But forgiveness is great. But that's not all salvation is. So what is salvation? What is it to be saved? Is it justification? Is it being declared innocent before God even when we are guilty in our sin? Well, being saved includes justification, but it's more than merely forgiveness. It's more than merely justification. The word salvation is multifaceted. It means deliverance from and deliverance into the, the same word, um, I've mentioned this before, but you know the Old Testament is written in, uh, in Hebrew. And uh, early on, it was translated into Greek, and we call that the Septuagint. And so you, you, when you look at, at the, the Hebrew scriptures, when they're translated into Greek, and you look at this word for salvation, you find it used in all kinds of contexts, like the Exodus How the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and God saved them out of slavery and into a new land. In Colossians, uh, we read that um, we were in darkness, but God rescued us from that darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His glorious Son. Salvation is rescue. From certain death and transference into abundant life. Salvation is past, present, and future. So it would be appropriate to say, I was saved. It would be appropriate to say, I am saved. And it would certainly be appropriate to say, I will be saved. Multifaceted. Expands all time. But this term, salvation... The concept, when you really think about it, of being saved, it's so difficult for most of us to swallow. First of all, it's difficult to swallow because if we're really honest with each other or with ourselves, do we really need to be saved? What do we have to be saved from? As I've mentioned before, in the ancient world in which Paul was writing and ministering, most people were very aware of their need for rescue. They were used to people dying all around them. They were used to low quality of life. They were used to disease and disfigurement and oppression. In fact, disease and oppression was a matter of when and how often instead of if and, hey, what are the chances? As far as religion, Paul's audience was very religious. They had multiple gods. They were fearful of the spiritual powers. They didn't have a benevolent God that they could trust or believe in. They had gods that they thought they had to bribe. They didn't have a God who was looking out for them or loved them. So Paul's message to this early audience is good news. There's a God who's superior to your idols. There's a God who made you and loved you and loves you. And this God sent His Son, Jesus, to rescue you through His death and resurrection. And just as important, this Jesus now reigns and is over all these other spiritual powers that you're so afraid of. He's mighty to save. He's the rescuer. He is your salvation. For many people, I would argue most people in the world today, what we sometimes call the two-thirds world, this is still very good news because life is hard. 
Longing for salvation is in view almost every day. If you're in the Sudan today, and you haven't seen fresh water in a long time, and armed bandits just took your latest shipment of Red Cross supplies, you've watched your children starve to death. Bring the salvation. But for those of us in the first world, most of us have the basic comforts of life that would be a luxury in many places in the world. We have the uncanny ability to buy masks for our pain. Do we really believe that living without Jesus as Lord of our lives would lead to death and judgment? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe we are helpless to rescue ourselves? Do we really think about our own mortality very often? Just an aside, part of the power of Lent and Ash Wednesday in particular um, is, is receiving those ashes, those burnt ashes on our foreheads or our hands in the sign of the cross with these words, from dust you have come, to dust you shall return. Repent and trust in this good news. Because it doesn't matter how much money or comfort or status we have. We are made of carbon and water and a few other minerals. And we have our life breathed into us from the living God. And when that life expires, water and carbon, we go back. Intellectually, we may say, okay, I'll trust Jesus. It sounds like a good insurance policy. That and my farmer's plan and, and my car insurance and all these other things. It can't hurt, I guess. That's kind of the, the American way to look at salvation. Uh, but herein lies the problem. We were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we formerly walked. We didn't realize we had a problem. We could not get out. We couldn't save ourselves. We still can't. And that's where grace comes in. But God, because of the great love which with, he, which with He loved us, even while we were dead in our sins, made us alive together in Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. What a wonderfully offensive message that is. You don't think it's offensive? You aren't listening. You are dead without Jesus. I am dead without Jesus. You're dead if He doesn't do something about that predicament. You are dead unless Jesus rescues you by dying for you and rising and reigning and inviting you into this new life. Oh, how we have a hard time with grace. Oh, how I have a hard time with grace. We're taught from very early on to be independent and self-reliant. And that is a mark of a mature person. We don't like to ask for favors because we don't really like being in someone else's debt. We don't like that feeling of having to take. And it's our fear and our disdain, I would argue, of grace that makes the church so judgmental and unattractive at times. I spent some time with Peter Sung on Friday. Peter Sung is the director of church planting for all of our denomination. 
And Peter, one of the things he always talks about is how he thinks healthy church should be two things. Holy and safe. Holy and safe. And, and he talks about how Jesus was so holy and so safe at the same time. He was so aware of who he was, that God was his father. He, he could walk in absolute holiness and at the same time, because he was so sure of who he was, he didn't have to tell everyone else they were screwed up. And you know what happened with Jesus is some of the worst sinners in the world flocked to him. See, when churches are healthy, or not healthy rather, they're either safe but not holy, and so they just let anything go, or they try and be holy, but they're uber judgmental, right? And nobody feels safe being there. Jesus was holy, and yet the worst sinners were attracted to him. Jesus called people to the highest standards. Remember last year when we went through the Sermon on the Mount? That's some intense stuff. He called people to the highest standards, and yet the lowest dregs of society longed just to have the dust of his feet rest on them. They just wanted to be around him. Philip Yancey wrote... Uh, What's so amazing about grace? And this is a story from a friend of his who had an encounter. It says, A prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. And through sobs and tears, she told me she'd been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in that kind of thing. She made more renting her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a whole night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. And at last I asked if she'd ever thought of going to the church for help. And I'll never forget the look of pure, naive shock on her face. Church! she cried. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. And what struck me about my friend's story is that women much like this prostitute fled toward Jesus, not away from him. The worst person felt about herself, or the worse a person felt about herself, the more likely she saw Jesus as a refuge. How has church lost that gift? Evidently, the down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome among his followers. What has happened? Is your idea of grace big enough for that woman? Do you really believe that you need grace? Are you in touch with your desperate need for grace yesterday and today and tomorrow? The longer I follow Jesus and try to do that, the more and more aware I'm becoming of how fallen I am, of how I need God's grace. I become more and more aware that everything I do and say has mixed motives. 
even in pastoring and thinking I'm serving God, I want you to like me and to think that I'm smart. I want to be accepted. Maybe you've been finding that too. The longer that you follow Jesus, the more he reveals these things in us, these, these ideas and these thoughts and these mixing of motive. And that's all the more, I think, it makes grace all the more come alive for me. And it shows me every year, I think, more and more how much I need that grace in my life. I think for many of us, we like that intellectual idea of grace, but we don't really trust in it. We say something like this, Thanks, Jesus, for dying and all. Thanks for forgiving me, but I'll take it from here. And how do I know that? (laughs) Well, because I struggle with that, but I know it because of the qualifying word in the sentence. Faith. By grace, you have been saved through faith. By grace, we have been saved through faith. Faith. It's what we put our weight on in life. Faith is what we actually believe. Faith is how you actually live your life. We may say we like the idea of grace, but we often place our faith in whatever we feel like. Usually in our own performance or in our own pursuit of comfort. As you know, uh, my family pursued some comfort this last weekend by going skiing in Canada. Wonderful time. Skiing offers some unique experiences to talk to people because there's this unique phenomenon with skiing where you ride a chairlift up the mountain. Typically between four and eight minutes, depending on how fast it is and how long it is. And what's funny is you're on this chairlift, and so Corey and I are there, and there's four seats. And so usually two other people get on, and there could be from anywhere in the world, and we're all bundled up, so you'd never recognize them again. And it fosters some really interesting conversations. I call it chairlift psychology. So Corey and I rode up the one particular ride with a gentleman from Canada and we found out he has two adult daughters and we have two daughters and so we're talking about our kids. He said he loved his daughters very much and he was proud of them but he primarily talked about one of his daughters more than the other. She was a doctor in Australia and he kept mentioning how successful she was and, and he kept upping the ante like as soon as we didn't bite and say, well, you know, tell us more about her. And by the time we got to the top of the lift, he told us how many hundreds of thousands of dollars she made. And like, five minute ride, he's telling us the salary of his oldest daughters. I think that's weird. Again, chairlift psychology is is a unique experience. He hardly mentioned his younger daughter who was living with her boyfriend in a ski resort, uh, and he sounded disappointed in her. But the one thing that made his eyes sparkle about her was, but she did just get a new job with a pharmaceutical company, so I'm hoping that goes somewhere. He mentioned his love for them, right? But it's apparent to me that he put his weight on their performance. He put his weight on their performance. Another time we rode up with two older ladies who actually wouldn't even talk to us. They were doing their own thing. Uh, But their conversation with one another centered around uh, one of them caring for an elderly mother. I could tell they had, she, that she had an estranged relationship with her mother. Uh, and instead of loving her mother sacrificially, uh, she said this to her friend, and I quote, You know, 
I just follow the energy. I just don't feel the energy to help my mother, so I know it's not what I'm supposed to do. Now, I'll resist mentioning what a cop-out I think that is as I look to um, Gary and Ann and others, like my dad, who uh, (laughs) have done this differently. Um, But my point is that she put her weight, her faith, was in her subjective feelings about what she felt was good and right for her. And I guess my point in all of this is that only when we really come to grips with our need for grace are we going to put our weight and our trust and our faith in Jesus. I've noticed that the people I look up to the most, the ones who are most Christ-like, are also the ones who are most in touch with their need for grace. Keep in mind, the man who wrote this letter that we're expounding upon over and over again for weeks and weeks, the Apostle Paul, this guy was complicit in the stoning of Stephen, one of the early disciples, watched him get stoned to death. Then he made a career out of hunting down Christians to persecute them. He was completely walking in darkness. He was dead in his transgressions. And then something happened on his road to Damascus. He was made alive in Christ. Christ reached down to him by pure grace. Paul is a champion of grace. He realizes, maybe better than anyone I've ever read, how deeply gone he was, how he wasn't doing anything in his own strength to reach out to God. In fact, he thought he had God nailed. He He thought he was doing all right in his own strength. And Jesus reached out to him. And what happens when you experience grace like that is you begin to live for that grace giver. Paul deserved death and judgment just like us, and then Jesus rescued him. And from then on, Paul put his entire weight, not in his brilliant intellect, not in his uh, amazing ability to keep the law as well as he could, but in Christ. Klein Snodgrass comments, Faith has an adhesive quality to it. It binds the believer to the one who's believed. So salvation does not come from believing ideas or an emotional decision, but it comes from being bound to Christ. Faith is relational. And so there's nothing to boast about with grace and faith. There's nothing we can do to earn salvation. It's a gift from God. And to receive it, We live as though it were true. That's faith. People that encounter the grace of Jesus and place their faith in Him live differently. It's just a fact. They live differently. Not perfectly, but differently. It's almost as if they're new creations. In fact, it's exactly as if they're new creations. The Greek word behind uh, our English workmanship... We're moving to verse 10 now. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. That Greek word behind our English workmanship is the verb poema. Of course, uh, from this word we get poem, right? Work of art. And I've heard many a sermon on, oh, you're a work of art and God loves you. You're beautiful. And it's true. So feel good about yourself. You're, a, you're God's poem. But more important, importantly, I think, uh, that same verb is used in the creation story. In the beginning, God poemed the heavens and the earth. 
That's not really how you conjugate that verb, but you don't know that, so I'm just making it up. (laughs) Salvation in Jesus is not just some isolated concept. It's the culmination of the whole story of God and humanity and Israel and Jesus and us. God created all things and He created men and women, us, you and me, in His image. We are His icons or representations of God. We are created to work. I know that comes as a shock. We are created to be creative, to care for animals and plants and each other. We are created to be in relationship with God. But when we rebelled, starting with Adam and Eve and those first people, we keep perpetuating the problem, uh, our iconness got cracked and broken. So we don't reflect God in His full glory very properly. One of the major motifs of Jesus' ministry, I think, is creation. In fact, the Gospel of John um, begins with the same words as Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus. And John immediately frames all Jesus is about to do and say in relationship to creation. Salvation, then, wait for it, is recreation. A binding up of the broken image. Salvation, then, is recreation. It is Jesus making us whole and new. It is Jesus, our crucified, risen, and reigning King, inviting us into what He created us to be, image bearers of God. That doesn't mean you're going to get any better looking. Means your life is going to get better looking. So often when we sin, what do we say? Ah, I'm just human. Ah, I screwed up, I'm just human. That's not at all what the early church fathers and mothers used to say. In fact, the desert fathers said when they sinned that they're acting beastly. Because to be fully human is to be fully what God created us to be. And the one who is most fully human is Jesus the Christ in the flesh. He, more perfectly than anyone, in fact, not more perfectly, just plain perfectly, represented what it means to be a reflection of God. One verse says he's the image of the invisible God. I think in our brokenness, we have a very negative view of work. You think of the bumper stickers with, I'd rather be fishing or skiing or whatever on the beach. Uh, Maybe uh, the least creative is a little spiky-haired kid that's just urinating on the word work, right? Um, But we're actually created for good work, godly work, creative work, loving work, living like Jesus' work, making the world a better place in Jesus' name, work. Notice that this work is not defined in specific vocations like plumbing or medicine or homemaking or engineering. The focus is not so much on what you do to earn a paycheck, but on how you do what you do. It's significant that Paul brings back a word that he used earlier in chapter 2. He said, we were dead when we were walking in our sins and transgressions, according to the world. 
And now he says that God prepared good works for us to do what? To walk in. When we walk in our own direction, the direction of the world, which means society set up without God as its king. So when we're set up to walk in that direction, we walk to our death. But by God's grace, when we place our faith in Jesus for salvation, we begin this process of recreation, free to walk in Christ, to walk the walk of life. That's not an escape from this world or an escape from work. It's an invitation to engage in the most life-giving, meaningful work imaginable. Brothers and sisters, this good news is that if you are taking a good look at yourself and feeling like you're walking the listless road to destruction more often than not, Jesus is inviting me and inviting you to repent, to change course, to follow him and to walk the road of life. So whether you're repenting for the first time in your entire life or for the thousandth time, I invite you to respond to God's grace by placing your faith in Jesus afresh. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we have more translations of the Bible than I think has ever been in the history of the world, more access to information. We read about grace all the time in the church. And yet we so often actually trust in you and place all of our weight on you. Pray, Lord, for your grace in helping us to turn toward you this evening, to rely on you for our rescue. Lord, would you recreate us, bind us up where we're broken, and help us to follow you in obedience, because that is the road to life, Goodness. Amen.